Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live episode of The Yield. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you enjoy the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr. I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, we're joined by Jason Blick. Jason is the CEO of Ecobank, the world's first digital bank for corporate and private clients. Ecobank, which is a new kind of banking that puts you in control of your money and global assets. Ecofi is a decentralized protocol that's part of the bank for pooled lending and borrowing across traditional and cryptocurrencies. The protocol provides a single, uniform platform for DeFi products. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you. I mean, I guess to start, maybe it's always best uh, with you to tell us what really is Ecubank. So Ecubank was formed in 2015, so we've been around for a while now. And it was formed on one specific idea, to provide a global digital bank, predominantly focused on corporates, high net worths, and mass affluence, but really covering more than 180 countries around the world. So we're, we're quite different to most digital banks who are focused on perhaps just one or two jurisdictions. But, I mean, I think that, that last part there, too, it must be incredibly challenging when you think about, uh, you know, the, the one, all the regulatory and legal hurdles as far as working across all the different uh, jurisdictions. Um, but really, how, how uh, you know, were you guys able to kind of solve that problem? So the biggest problem with banks at the moment, Peter, is they have different lines of business, different operating structures in various geographies. So that creates, creates a real problem for a client that wants facilities in, say, five or six or ten different countries. They basically have to replicate everything they've done in terms of onboarding, get a product that makes sense to them, et cetera. So what we did is we just created one single vertical stack of products for 180 countries around the world. What that meant from a practical perspective is that our KYC, our Know Your Client, and our AML, anti-money laundering requirements, go way beyond the traditional bank. We're extremely prudent, extremely careful, but what it means is clients get a uniform level of service and products anywhere across the world. So that's interesting. I mean, when we think about on the institutional side, right, we think about large corporations that, you know, typically operate in many different jurisdictions. Uh, but on the, on the retail side, you know, how, how come this has become such a need for many of these clients? 
Well, the retail market is reasonably well covered already. There are some good digital banks in a series of individual countries of EU, UK, US, etc. But it wasn't focused on the needs of perhaps smaller environments, areas in the Middle East, Asia and Africa, which have been pretty much locked out of this revolution of digital banking. So we, we went out there and met their needs, and it's working very well. So approximately 30 to 35% of all of our clients are in emerging affluent countries or uh, developing countries, which is, which is pretty novel. Yeah, novel. And also, you know, we, we've had some guests on in the past where we really talked about how underpenetrated and underbanked a lot of those regions are. You know, when, when you guys think about entering some of these new markets, you know, how do you evaluate which new countries uh, you, know, you think you are able to serve? Well, I think it's fair to say that you always have to focus on a, on a country or environment that actually needs your product. And the more you stretch towards a developing country, the more that you see it's very, very required, simply because they are underutilized, they don't have uh, facilities that they need, et cetera. But that also applies to the corporates as well. You have corporates coming out of the middle of the Middle East, you have corporates coming out of Africa and what have you, that don't have particularly good access to global markets or cost-effectively. So those are, are an area of our business, not exclusively, of course, the vast majority of our clients are in developed countries, but it does give those uh, clients and entrepreneurs in, in developing countries an opportunity to really access global banking. Yeah, and you know, I guess for a lot of uh, corporations, obviously they, they have many different needs, right? But particularly when you're working uh, on a global basis, you have a lot of currency needs as well. And then what you guys do, as far as I understand, which is really unique, is you also marry that FX or traditional currency needs, but also now a lot more in the crypto space, which maybe we can get into a little bit. Yes, of course. So the crypto space is a very exciting part of, of our ecosystem. It represents about 15 to 20% of our overall client base. The vast, vast majority are traditional corporates and high net worths. But what you've seen uh, in, in the crypto world is basically the... Uh, Barriers coming in by a series of banks. If they find out you're involved in crypto, they'll often close your account or you'll be subject to significant investigation. Our approach is a bit different. Tell us what you do today. And if it is in crypto, we're ready, we're prepared, we know how to meet your needs. And we obviously feed that information to our correspondent banks. So similarly, they're aware of their multi-currency needs and the industry in which they are focused. Yeah, you know, I think you know what, what we found in, in our conversations, right, as we think about you know, what crypto will be going forward as an alternative uh, investment provider, we know that there's a strong retail demand for cryptocurrencies. But one area that's often less talked about is really what's going on on the corporate banking side and what some of the needs are for these clients in the crypto space. Maybe you can elaborate what your experiences have been so far there and really what you guys are trying to solve for that the corporations need? Well, many corporations, again, have struggled to maintain decent banking relationships. Look at Coinbase in the UK, that facility cut off. Uh, many of the, the larger exchanges have had a series of problems with their, their bankers. And as a result of that, you can often have 20 or 30 different banking providers just to make sure that these, these guys and girls have sufficient coverage. It's not a very efficient use of any corporate time. No CFO wants to be sat there managing 30 or 40 different banking relationships. So we meet the needs of, of crypto um, corporates, whether it's an exchange, an OTC house, et cetera, in 180 countries around the world. And then from a retail perspective, we make sure that they have really good and easy access to OTC facilities, custody, lending, credit cards, et cetera. So they don't really need to go to many other places. And that's, that's been a major uh, point of attraction to the retail client because otherwise, frankly, it's just too complicated, Peter. 
Yeah, I mean, like we, we saw, you know, obviously some headlines uh, by certain individuals, uh, mostly Elon Musk, you know, really trumpeting more than anything else, the use of cryptocurrency within the Tesla portfolio, which really, you know, one, there was a banking service by accepting uh, crypto, but also it seemed as though there was um, at least a view being taken on a corporate level for the direction of which Bitcoin was likely to go. You know, what, what real business needs do most non-banking corporations really have with cryptocurrency? Or is it really just another way to potentially use some, some assets uh, to generate higher returns? Well, most of the time, corporates, and let's really talk about funds, a certain amount of funds are really taking an interest in having that asset class on their books. So you're starting to see corporate funds take perhaps 5% up to 10% of their overall investment balance sheet into cryptocurrency. And of course, they see that as a very volatile asset uh, class. But they, it, they're being driven really to take a, a position in crypto because their retail clients are starting to insist on it. Um, and you're also starting to see countries now consider cryptocurrency as a national currency, El Salvador is obviously one. There are several others that are looking at it at the same time. So if countries are starting to consider cryptocurrency as an equal national currency, then you know it's starting to become more wild, wildly and, and, and commonly uh, accepted. Yeah, you know, I, I know we talked about it briefly, but like you think about um, all the different jurisdictions and all the different regulations, but also, you know, even within those, there's still kind of this, this uh, bit of gray area where a lot of these different competing firms are sort of playing. So, you know, what are some of the differentiators that you guys have really both on a jurisdictional basis, but also kind of holistically as a platform? Well, holistically, what, uh, what we can provide for not only crypto clients, of course, but general corporates is, uh, is, is six lines of business. So accounts in USD, sterling, euro, CAD, et cetera. And then we can provide them with a variety of credit card options, loans, custody, and OTC. So we are one of the few banks that provides OTC facilities if a client wants to buy into crypto or if a client wants to sell uh, from crypto. And what we've done is something a little unusual. Our OTC desk also provides access to securities, bonds, and treasuries. So for a, a corporate or perhaps a fund, they don't need to go anywhere else. And that's a major difference. Uh, I think it's almost inevitable that other big banks will move into that space. But these tend to be oil tankers. It takes them a long time to move their positions where smaller digital banks can own more speedboats who can move very quickly into areas that really represent client need and client demand. Yeah, but how does it work, I guess, more along the lines of whether, you know, becoming licensed in all these different uh, com uh, countries and jurisdictions as opposed to maybe some other players who, you know, kind of operating a little bit in the shadow in different uh, jurisdictions where perhaps they're not fully authorized to participate? You're absolutely right, Peter. The biggest area of concern for crypto and DeFi is really the, the licensing position of those individual platforms. As with any technology uh, burst, you do end up with technologists starting platforms, systems, codes, et cetera, but without really considering um, the legal implications of what they're doing, they get so excited about the innovation that things like finance control and legal becomes perhaps lesser, less and less important. But that's also a major inhibitor to growth. That's the real opportunity for crypto now. It's in the corporate world. It's in the fund side, et cetera. So, you know, funds can't invest in unlicensed platforms. They can't start buying Bitcoin, et cetera, from a, an unregulated uh, provider, an unregulated exchange, or an unregulated OTC provider. So what you're starting to see is funds taking a lot more interest in those platforms that are licensed 
and a little less interest or no interest, really, on, in unlicensed uh, platforms. And that's also the case with the retail guys. The retail guys that have perhaps not got that much experience in crypto obviously are really drawn to those that are well-publicized, well-regulated, well-licensed. And thankfully, they're, they're less attracted to those platforms that are, that are complex, unlicensed, and could potentially present risk. Yeah. And, and you also, you know, we, we've, we've talked a lot about this, about what the future is of banking. We've talked a lot about, you know, this, this digital private banking experience that I think a lot of people feel as though is the future. Um, one question we've got asked quite a bit as it comes into us, and certainly something that Yield Street thinks about quite often is, you know, when you are digital first, oftentimes, you know, that, that uh, leads the impression uh, of someone to believe that really th there's less of a customer service or a human behind to help out with their individual needs. So how do you kind of balance, you know, making sure it's a high quality, high touch customer service with also, you know, a more fast digital do-it-yourself orientation? Some of the other digital banks out there that are focused only on the retail market can't scale without automating everything. And as you rightly say, in banking, when someone's looking after your money, you do want a personal touch. You don't want to be dealing with bots all the time and automated responses. So we're a little different. We're not focused on having millions upon millions of customers and users. We're focused on providing very personal service to a certain number of clients. So each of our premier clients gets their own a dedicated relationship manager. So day or night, they have one person that they can go to that develops quite a trusted relationship. And we've found that that has worked really, really well. So it's that hybrid between the efficiencies of digital on the tech side and an infrastructure side, plus that personal touch when, when a client has a question or an issue or a demand for a new product. Yeah, and I also think, you know, one of the things that, you know, we try to emulate at YieldTree, and I, I think I felt this as well while I was perusing your website, is really you need to lead with transparency in these type of situations, right, where, where there's going to be a little bit less of human interaction and a little bit less of, you know, the ability to go and ask all your questions, making sure that everything is laid out on the table, things aren't really hidden, we at least believe is kind of, you know, a, a, a guiding light for, for how we can structure ourselves as a digital-first platform. Yeah, I mean, you can't have these non-transparent environments where you're asking someone to deposit their money or assets and you don't know who the management team is you don't know which country they're regulated you don't do peter if there's a problem so ourselves along with most banks are very transparent about who's in the management team what they do what their credentials are there's a clear way to um to escalate issues you do get to speak to an individual a relationship manager who develops a trusted relationship etc but if those core part if those core elements are not in in place, it would certainly make me nervous. I only bank with Equibank because not only is it a bank in which we operate and work, but it does provide all of the services that I, I personally need. I'd be less interested in feeling, I don't know, one of 10 million, 20 million clients that uh, the bank doesn't even know who I am. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We've actually had a couple of questions come through, so I do also want to encourage the audience to uh, feel free to drop in any questions as, as they come to mind. The first question was, which countries in Africa are you doing business with, and specifically being able to transact in both fiat and cryptocurrencies? So we cover about 10 countries specifically at the moment in Africa, not because we're not covering the other ones, but those are the ones that have specific demands. So Botswana, South Africa, Nigeria, Egypt is another area that's receiving a lot of attention, and a couple of sub-Saharan African countries as well. Increasing demand from Ethiopia, which is interesting. A lot of commodities are coming out of all of these countries, and, and that's an area where they often find a lot of difficulty. They can't get letters of credit, can't borrow, or if they, indeed they can, uh, they're working with a bank that really doesn't understand their needs. If you're in the middle of uh, Botswana with a, an, or an iron ore uh, 
plant, then the chances are uh, guys from New York or London really don't understand what your needs are. So we have a specific team to focus on on Africa, along with a specific team that focuses on the Middle East. That makes a lot of sense. The, the, the next question we got that came in was, uh, can U.S. client funds be held in correspondent bank off, banks offshore, or are they always deposited with a U.S. correspondent bank? Talking about individual accounts, not corporate. Yes, certainly. So that's a great question, actually. Correspondent banks are an integral part of the entire banking infrastructure. So U.S. dollars uh, that are deposited with us are held uh, predominantly in the United States with large banks. But in some instances, we also work with a very, very large correspondent in, in Singapore that has global coverage. So, you know, for each individual currency, we park money with a very large and respected correspondent in that particular country. Yeah, but the, the, your company itself, though, is actually not U.S.-based, correct? You just have banking relationships or, uh, you know, your own bank within a lot of these individual jurisdictions, correct? So there are national banks on just one or two jurisdictions, like China or in the U.K., and they, they only focus on those individual countries. Uh, we're a global offshore bank, so we can cover the needs of clients in 180 countries. It doesn't mean that we advertise in individual countries, because it's attraction rather than promotion for us. But that's, that's a big differentiator to, uh, to every other digital bank. Because to, to, for us, Peter, clients have global needs. It's, we have global trade. Crypto, for example, is 24 by 7, 365 days a week. So you need more than perhaps just one national bank. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, it's also, I think, important just to highlight, uh, if, if I'm understanding correct, that you know, again, taking a more global nature, you know, depending on, on uh, one, the sources of deposits and where you decide or the, the customer and client decides to really park that money, you also get the benefits in many instances of some of the local banking regulations, including here in the U.S., something as, as significant as FDIC insurance and, and the like. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So when we park money with correspondents in the U.K. or the U.S. or elsewhere, then in most instances, there are additional covers, additional protections for that client. Yeah. And, and then, so, you know, we're, we, I want to, you know, evolve this a little bit into, uh, into DeFi and crypto. As we know, it's always uh, uh, something top of mind for us. And certainly, we look to other partners, uh, you know, out there in, in, in the space that are really starting to provide uh, some alternatives outside of trading platforms, but really some, some business and, and personal use cases. One question that did come in that's along those lines, we can sort of pivot a little bit more towards crypto, is again, this concept of, you know, crypto is working a little bit outside of the traditional banking system. Um, but also, you know, which is oftentimes viewed as a competitor to traditional uh, fiat currencies and also central bank regulated banking processes. But, you know, how do you view crypto versus, let's say, something along the lines of something that the Fed has been looking into with FedNow, where they might provide, you know, some ledger based future digital banking um, that's maybe a little bit different than something like a Bitcoin? So we need to talk about the size of the industries. Um, uh, the crypto industry is a couple of uh, trillion dollars. In the grand scheme of things, it's, it's tiny. The global banking market is $134 trillion. And even that's dwarfed by the global uh, derivatives market, which is over $500 trillion. So there's no question that crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, standard top 10, top 20 coins have a part to play. But we use these assets as a way to perhaps buy large um, uh, consignments of oil and gas or buy large assets, et cetera. At the moment, cryptocurrency in a traditional sense can be used for real estate, but not a great deal more than that. So that's one of the things we definitely need to do. But the volatility at the moment is, is, is a little tricky. 
people don't necessarily feel as comfortable as they could do. And that's where these great stable coins come in. Stable coins enable settlement 24 hours a day, seven days a week in minutes rather than our traditional SWIFT system, which can take three, four, or five days. So there's definitely the need to bridge the two. And if you don't bridge the two, then you're dealing with incredible complexity of doing your crypto trades, sending your stable coins, but then the recipient will then have to do an OTC, and then the OTC then goes to the bank account, and if the bank isn't very crypto-friendly, it's a real nightmare. So unquestionably, we're seeing a progress of banks taking on crypto, custody facilities, et cetera, trading and what have you. But the next big revolution will be the rollout of national stable coins, so-called central bank digital currencies. But to that point, do you believe that the Fed comes out with a, with a digital currency that it sort of um, youths a lot of the demand and um, excitement around Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies? Well, now it's become a national battle. Ultimately, the US dollar has been the currency of last resort for about 100 years. But RMB has already gone digital in several provinces in China, and it's been absolutely incredible. It's been an amazing success. So now what's happened, the EU, all of the large G20 countries are finding mechanisms where they enter central bank digital currencies in order to not only grow potential transactional business, but more importantly, Peter, protect their current status. Because let's use a a quick example. If you can settle an RMB trade, whether you're buying something across across multiple countries, you can settle that uh, in in a matter of milliseconds. Whereas with USD, traditional Fed USD, you're still reliant upon days and in some instances weeks, worst case scenario, to settle a transaction. So now what's happened to the US and to an extent the EU is playing catch up. Oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So so it leads me again to the to the next question, which is obviously, you know, even a, a digital currency run by the Fed or another uh, you know, country's central bank is still part of this concept around centralized banking. And so obviously, you know, people first learned a lot about uh, digital currencies and, and blockchain through you know, the likes of the introduction of Bitcoin. And now where I think the evolution and the continued knowledge growth is happening is really around this concept of DeFi, right? Which sounds almost anarchist, right? But obviously has a lot of utility outside of, you know, uh, anything in in anarchy. So maybe you could walk uh, everyone through what is DeFi and really what its importance is going forward. Well, DeFi is, uh, without question, the most rapidly growing sector of financial services. You run it's 1,000 100% growth over the course of the last 12 months. And there's a series of sort of political, emotional, and certain rebellious streak behind those that are interested in DeFi or were. It's now becoming a lot more sophisticated. But at the heart of it, DeFi means you're removing intermediaries. You're removing banks, you're removing brokers, and you're removing exchanges. So users can trade amongst themselves, they can borrow and lend between themselves without having to work with a, with a counterparty. Because to be honest, Peter, many people don't trust banks. Uh, you only need to go back to 2008 and you saw a collapse in balance sheet, which lost a lot of people a lot of money. So in many instances, and particularly in the millennials, they much prefer to hold on to their asset, use a technology platform like DeFi, and feel as if they're in control Bank is in a very unusual situation. We do not lend a single dollar off the balance sheet. So we're in a very safe and protected environment, but that's not the case with most banks. So uh, the flexibility of DeFi, I think, is becoming very exciting. There aren't as many corporates involved as we hope there will be in the future, but it is a revolution. And frankly, from a banking perspective, it does represent long-term and existential threat 
to existing centralized entities. So to that point, right, like, you know, if we take the assumption that DeFi will continue more peer-to-peer or corporation-to-corporation facing transactions, you know, who are the companies or what are the industries that, that are going to experience, or I guess, who will become the winners and losers, right? The winners might be a little bit more obvious, but then who are some of the losers and that, that from that fallout? Well, the losers are predominantly centralized entities, legacy and old traditional banks, the so-called big bank, uh, brokers, investment banks, and uh, exchanges who make their money on service fees, or in the case of banks, taking everybody's money and then lending it to other people. So those are the guys and girls that are facing or will face increased pressure. And frankly, banks just really don't know where to go with this. Is it an existential threat? Is it growing at a rate that causes them some confusion? But more importantly, most banks are never going to be able to move into this space because they're still using legacy technology, legacy compliance systems, and they're in the dark ages. So what we're seeing is to start with retail. Vast majority DeFi is at the moment in the retail space. But um, there's no doubt that corporates, funds, et cetera, are going to take an increased amount of interest as long as the platform is licensed and regulated and transparent. Well, so, so, you know, a traditional banking model, right, is, you know, as an individual, you deposit your money, you receive some rate that is likely below what the bank is then able to lend out to other corporations or those in need of money, right? And I think that, generally speaking, makes a lot of sense to, to retail investors. They sort of know exactly where their money is. And obviously earn, you know, currently a, a relatively marginal rate, but historically, you know, a, a rate on their savings amount. I guess, you know, and while we understand that there's this digital ledger that users can rely on, I guess there's kind of this concept that do retail investors fully understand really where their money is? And maybe you can kind of explain the difference between really the custody within a bank and kind of really what happens in a more um, digital banking world. Well, one of the reasons DeFi has just gone through the roof is perhaps well, two of the reasons. The first is simplicity. So um, it, it, with a client that lodges their Bitcoin because they want to borrow against it from the time that they deposit that in custody to the point in which they receive their stable coin or US dollars or euro is as little as 20 minutes. Now, that cannot be replicated by existing banking systems. It's, it's absolutely impossible. So that's the, other, that's the first area of, of excitement around the DeFi sector. The second is the rates, Peter. As you rightly say, uh, in Europe, there's negative interest rates. So if a client deposits a million dollars today, they come back in a month's time and there's $990,000 there, et cetera. And, and many people think that's extremely unfair. And that's because it's dictated by the central banks and the monetary authorities. And, and people really want to feel empowered. They, they don't want to be subject to the political controls of the central bank or a monetary authority. They, they want to be able to determine how much their money is worth to them. So that's, that's one of the bigger threats for, uh, for banking. Because DeFi doesn't have to cover all of the costs. You don't have to have billions of dollars of IT technology, et cetera. It can be run very modestly, but quicker, more efficiently, and uh, more in tune with, with, uh, with globalization. So if we kind of take that idea, though, right, and, and we say that you know, uh, central banks will serve a purpose of some kind going forward, you know, one of, at least at present, oftentimes one of the, the services that they provide is during systematic or, or large market risk off or, or, or you know, market drawdown environments, they obviously provide a source of liquidity. They provide a source of confidence in the market for people being able to transact. If we were to imagine a scenario where they don't, or, you know, don't exist in their current form, how do you sort of see DeFi and finance kind of evolving during a real large market shock? So central banks and monetary authorities, their principal obligation is to control economic policy. DeFi 
doesn't in any way control macroeconomic policy. It really controls microeconomic policy. What I do with my money, what you do with your money. It's highly unlikely that DeFi will ever get to the stage that, that it has a massive uh, economic policy effective on central banks. And if it ever did, then you would have a you know, hyperinflation issue because people would in essence be just printing money constantly, which has been one of the worries about um, some of the older stable coins out there. When you really, really dig, is it one-to-one? Is my $1 stable coin equal to $1 in an existing bank or facility? And if it's not, people can or should get nervous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so, so I guess, you know, kind of looking forward, you don't necessarily predict an environment where tradition, traditional regulatory and, and sort of central banks kind of don't really continue to play a prominent role. It's just a question at a micro level how things kind of evolve and some power that people are able to take back at least. Yeah, so uh, individual macroeconomic policy won't materially be affected by DeFi. What it means is their existing economic policies are going to be more quickly deployed and more efficiently deployed, which frankly is in the interests of every drawback. The greater efficiency, the greater the way you can protect your currency, the easier that you can make your currency more attractive as a currency, not a last resort, but relevant, is in your national interest. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. We, we've got about two more questions that came in. One question I do also just want to alert you is specific to your, your company. So maybe you can provide some resources for people to check out on their own and maybe direct some questions um, to your company specifically. Yes. So if anybody has any questions or uh, queries about uh, Ekibank, then they can uh, at uh, www.ekibank.com. And there's a nice little facility there where people can lodge questions and answers and what have you. We tend to respond within less than 24 hours. On the DeFi side, because we do have this wonderful regulated DeFi platform, it's www.ekifi.com. And again, there's a really nice automated system which helps address people's questions and queries, etc. Fully staffed, 24 hours a day. Perfect. Thank you for that. And so the last question we got was, do you believe that there is an alternative to FDIC and insurance in traditional retail banking, uh, essentially in the crypto banking world? Um, So, I mean, if you look at the practicalities, for example, of insurance on pretty much any currency in any central bank anywhere in the world or correspondent, it's not in tune with the reality of, uh, of the monies that have been deposited. For example, if a corporate has an enormous amount of interest in USD, maybe it's a public company, et cetera, $250,000 just isn't, doesn't cut it. If I'm lodging 15 to $20 million, I want to have a greater level of security than just $250,000. And that's when you can start to look at the credit, rate, the credit rating of those individual banks, make sure they don't face any liquidity problems, check out their balance sheets. But you've really got to kind of know what you're doing to go down to that level of information. Good DeFi platforms, for example, are materially more transparent. You know you can check the, the Ethereum wallets, for example. You know how much money is in there. You know where it's going. You can see it all. So there is a greater level of transparency. Now, you don't have the insurance at the moment, but it's unquestionable that we're going to start to see captive insurance companies coming in, giving that sense of protection to people. And eventually, you'll end up with syndicates like Lloyd's and London, et cetera, providing very bespoke insurance products for those that are in licensed DeFi. That's really helpful and very insightful. Jason, I do want to thank you so much for joining us today for all of our guests. To listen to other episodes of The Yield, please visit and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. And for any questions on Yield Treat, please visit www.yieldtreat.com. 
or email us at investments at yieldstreet.com. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment products. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.